0: Amen. You can be seated. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Romans chapter 12, the first two verses, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Actually, now that I say that, Romans chapter 12, just verse 1. Verse 1. Having laid out the gospel in Eleven chapters, essentially, the Apostle Paul comes to Romans chapter 12, and he tells us how we should live, what our lives should look like, in light of the gospel that he has just preached for 11, 11 chapters to the Romans. And he says this, "'Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship.'" So Paul is telling us that having been redeemed by God, having been saved by His grace, you can think back through uh, a number of the first 11 chapters of Romans and think about the kinds of things that the Apostle Paul has said in those verses about who we were in our sin, how God saved us by His grace through faith alone in Christ alone, how He has begun a work of sanctification in us by His Spirit, how salvation is of His grace from beginning to end, In light of all that God has done for you by his mercy, Paul says, now present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. In other words, all of life is now worship for the believer. Every part of your life is worship. From the time you wake up to the time you go to bed, God commands you and instructs you as someone who has been redeemed by his grace to live a life of worship to him. The topic of the chapter tonight is worship. Uh, So if you have a bulletin, you'll notice chapter 22 of religious worship and the Sabbath day is the whole chapter 22. We're not going to get to the Sabbath day tonight, so we'll save the Sabbath for next week, uh, next Wednesday, not next Sabbath. So we will talk about the Sabbath on Wednesday uh, of next week, and that's paragraphs seven and eight of the chapter, but here on your bulletin you have paragraphs one to six, and those deal specifically with worship. And as I said, worship is a lifestyle for the Christian. So everything we do is to be done as an act of worship. We can think of passages uh, like Colossians 3, and Ephesians 5, where speaking specifically to slaves in that context, Paul says, whatever you do in all of your work, do it all as, as unto the Lord, because it's the Lord that you serve. It's Jesus Christ that you serve. And so everything you do from moment to moment should be done as an expression of love and worship to God. And that's true, but there's also a danger of, in saying that all of life is worship, there's also the danger of minimizing the particular kind of worship that takes place when the church comes together. And so all of life is an expression of worship to God, but at the same time the scriptures put special emphasis or a particular emphasis on the kind of worship that takes place when the church comes together. Or in other words, the kind of worship that takes place when we lay aside other responsibilities of life with the intentional purpose of setting our hearts and our minds on seeking the Lord. There's a a distinct emphasis on worship in that sense as uh, distinct from worship as a lifestyle. Both are true, but there's a particular emphasis given to corporate worship in that sense or particular times of worship, uh, as we'll see, including even times as individuals of personal worship and times as families of family worship. And so what this chapter is dealing with is not so much worship as a lifestyle, but it's dealing more specifically with worship as a particular time that we devote to seeking the Lord. So that's the, the topic, and that's what we'll discuss tonight. And then next week, we'll come back and look at the day of worship, which is the Sabbath day or the Lord's day. All right, so we're thinking about the topic of religious worship, the first paragraph basically lays out the principle of worship. Uh, Or in other words, it's answering two questions for us. So there there are two questions we need to answer. First is, how do we know that we should worship? How do you and I know that we owe God worship? And then the second question would be, how do we know how we should worship? So two questions this paragraph is answering. First, how do we know that we should worship at all? And then secondly, how do we know how we should worship? And so first, it answers the question, how do we know that we worship, by essentially saying what Romans 1 says, that every single person who has ever been created knows that there is a God, that he is good, that he is eternal, that he is powerful, and that he deserves worship. Every single person who's ever been created has been given that sort of knowledge by God. It's been revealed within them in the words of of Romans chapter 1 that there is a God. When they look out on creation, they're convinced there is a God. And that understanding then communicates to us not only is there a God, but this God who made us is also worthy of our worship. And so the question being, how do we know that we should worship? The answer is simply we know that we should worship Because God has clearly revealed it to every single image-bearer. There is no one in all of creation who can say, I had no idea that I owed God worship. Paul says no one is with an excuse. No one has an excuse for not worshiping God. In other words, the light of nature. Not the scriptures, but just the light of nature. Someone who has never opened a Bible before knows that they owe worship to God. But... Someone who has never opened a Bible before or has never heard the Bible spoken to them, the truths of the Scriptures, will never know how to worship God and what worship should look like. They know that they should. They don't know how to. And so in order to know how we should worship, we have to have the Scriptures. There are two different approaches to worship, uh, primarily within uh, what would be known as Protestant camps, evangelicalism. So, on the one hand, there is normative worship, the, the normative principle of worship. On the other hand, there's what's known as the regulative principle of worship. And on a Wednesday night at 6 30, I'm sure all of you are desperately eager to know what is the difference between normative principle of worship and regulative principle. And so, I'll ask you, I'm sure someone wants to say, what is the normative principle of worship? Anybody? What's normal? Yeah? Maybe I'll start with regulative. What's the regulative principle of worship? And Anthony can't answer. All right, Anthony, you can answer. Which one? I don't know. Whichever one you want. Regulative is regulated by the principles of Scripture. Normative is not in Scripture. All right. So regulative, everything we do in worship is regulated by the Scriptures. In other words, we don't do what God has told us not to do, not to do, but even beyond that, in the regulative principle, we don't do what God has not told us to do. So we don't do what he's not told us to, but we also don't do, well, hold on. Confuse myself. We don't do what God has forbidden, but we also only do what he's commanded. That would be a better way to say it. We don't do what he's forbidden, but we we also only do what he's commanded. On the other hand, you have normative Normative says, basically, you are free to do in worship anything that God has not forbidden. And so the, the way that uh, actually both Jeremy Walker and Sam Waldron used this illustration, and neither of them gave credit to the other person or the person they stole it from. So I'm going to steal it from both of them, and I don't know where it actually came from. But both of them used the illustration of a building. And, and they said, imagine that a, a, a person who wants a particular building built for him He gives bricks and materials to a particular man. This will be Mr. Normative. And Mr. Normative is responsible to build a building for this man. But he's not only allowed to use those materials, he's also allowed to go find whatever other materials he wants to add to the building. And not only that, but there's no no specific blueprint that he's given for the building, and so he can use a lot of creativity and imagination with regard to how he actually puts the building together. That's Mr. Normative. But then you have Mr. Regulative. And Mr. Regulative is given the materials, but then he's told, look, you can only use these materials. You can't go find other materials to build the building. These are the materials I want you to use to build the building. And not only that, here's the blueprint. Here's how I want you to to put these things together. Now imagine, if that were the case, what those two buildings would potentially look like. They'd look very different, wouldn't they? When the church gathers together, God has given us the materials to build with, to build our worship with. He's told us in his word what worship should look like. And he has said, this is how you are to worship me. And, and we're not free to go and, and then find other ways that we would like to worship him and add those onto the pile of things that he's commanded us to do. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, uh, it's in the context of, of God warning Israel against the practices of false worship of the nations, uh, idolatrous worship, worship that's, that's displeasing to the Lord uh, and warning them against false teachers in general. And, and God is saying, don't do what the nations do when they worship their gods. Don't adopt for yourself their practices. And this is what God says through Moses. He says, whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add nor take away from it. And that's the principle of Uh, the scriptures regulating worship. You don't add to what God has told us, and you also don't take away from it. We attempt to worship God in the precise way that he's commanded us to worship him. Matt Merker summarizes this point well. Uh, He says, simply put, the regulative principle keeps us from planning a service by asking, what would we like to do? Or what do we assume would reach people? Rather, it compels us to ask, what has God called us to do? So that's the regulative principle of worship. We ask, what has God told us to do when we come together for worship? And it's, it's not that every church that uh, practices the regulative principle of worship, the biblical principle of worship, they're not all going to look alike because there are certain things that God hasn't specifically told us when it comes to the ways that we should worship him. So he has told us, as we'll see, That in the gathered worship of the church, the the scriptures should be read publicly. He hasn't told us how many chapters to read every week. Uh, He has told us that sermons should be preached. He has not told us how long those sermons should be, uh, or whether they should be consecutively taught through books of the Bible or picked at random, like Charles Spurgeon did. He has just said preach, and, and then there's a lot of freedom with regard to how that's applied, or what kind of music. Uh, should be sung, or or those types of things. God has not said exactly what kinds of things we should do when it comes to specific applications, but he has told us what to do and the essential elements of those things. Preach, read, sing, pray, as we'll see, a number of other things. And then when it comes to the the application of those, there's a wide range of variation with how we'll, we'll go about doing them. When we meet, at what time in the morning, even how many times a day we meet on the Lord's Day, all of those are matters of application. Uh, and so there's going to be some difference between one church to another, even those who practice the regulative principle. Now, uh, maybe we should ask the question at this point, why does this matter for me as an individual when I come to worship? Why does it matter to me that God has regulated worship by his word? Some would, some would say, look, if you, if you are that strict about what can and can't happen in a church service. If, if you're going to limit what can happen in a church service to what God has said only in his word that we should do, then, then you're, you're stifling people. You're stifling the expression of the Holy Spirit. Uh, because maybe the Holy Spirit's going to lead someone to do something that God hasn't directly commanded. Uh, may, maybe, maybe someone will want to express worship to God genuinely and sincerely from their heart in a way that, that God hasn't particularly Told us to. And so, this regulative principle, it's actually like a straitjacket that just binds us and, and traps us and locks us into this strict tradition that, uh, that, that stifles the expression of the Holy Spirit. Is that, uh, is that the case? Is that what the regulative principle does for us, stifling and binding us? I would say it's actually the very opposite. Uh, the, the regulative principle is actually what sets us free in worship. Um, Ellie was playing piano tonight and she did an excellent job Uh, and I could get on that same piano and do a terrible job. What's the difference between me and Ellie? Ellie knows the rules of piano and she knows how to apply those rules so that a beautiful sound comes out and she's trained her fingers to play in a way that produces a beautiful sound. I do not know those rules, and I've not trained my fingers to play according to those rules. And so the sound that I produce on the piano is not going to be pleasing to anyone's ears in this room. And the same is true for worship. God has told us his rules for worship. And so when we come together and we apply his rules of worship, then we can be certain that the, the sound produced, uh, to, to put it that way, or the, uh, what's expressed in worship, we can be certain this is actually what sounds good to God This is actually what pleases him. We don't have to guess and wonder, uh, is this really what he wants from me? No, we we can know for sure when we come to worship, this is exactly what God has told us to do, and we can do it with complete confidence that this is pleasing to our creator and our redeemer. So it actually sets us free. Again, to quote uh, Matt Merker, he says, Freedom does not mean doing whatever we want to do in the church. That's not what freedom is. It means resting in the joy that we are doing what God wants us to do. And so that's what the regulative principle of worship does for us. It sets us free to be able to know that when we worship we are pleasing to the Lord. So that's the first paragraph then dealing with the regulative principle. The second paragraph I'll read this one I won't make a lot of comments on it because it's straightforward. It says, religious worship is to be given to God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to him alone. It's not to be given to angels, saints, or any other creatures. And since the fall, worship is not to be given without a mediator, nor through any mediation than that of Christ alone. All right, who is the, this particular paragraph of the confession particularly aimed at, do you think? Yeah, Roman Catholicism. The veneration or worship of, of saints and even angels in some contexts, and praying through mediators like Mary or other saints. And what the confession is saying, and rightly so, is that there is one object of worship and veneration, and that is God, and there is one mediator through whom we come to God, and that's the man Christ Jesus. First Timothy 2, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And so there's no place for Mary worship or uh, Mary mediatorial uh, intercession. There is only room for the worship of the one true God and the mediation of Christ. Then the third paragraph now starts to deal with uh, some of the elements of worship. And as you notice on the uh, on the bulletin or the outline, there are three paragraphs dealing with the elements of worship. Paragraphs three to five all deal with the elements of worship, but two paragraphs are given. Uh, entirely to the topic of prayer. And so prayer is one element of worship, and as we'll see, there's a number of other elements of worship, but the confession gives a lot of attention to prayer and less attention to the others, and so we'll spend a little bit more time thinking about prayer as an element of worship. And so when I say element of worship, I just mean one of the particular things that God has commanded us to do in worship. An element of worship is what worship is constructed with or built with. What do we build worship with? These components, these aspects or elements. And one of the elements of worship is prayer. And the confession is dealing specifically with acceptable prayer. What is it it that makes our prayer, when we come together as a church, what makes our prayer acceptable to God? If someone were to ask you that question, where would you start in explaining what makes our prayer acceptable? How can we know that we're praying in a way that is pleasing to our Father? There are three major categories listed here that help us see what acceptable praying looks like. It's an acceptable framework, an acceptable manner, and acceptable content. So first, the acceptable framework. This is uh, primarily paragraph three in the confession, and I'll read uh, that first part there. Prayer with thanksgiving, being one special, distinct part of natural worship, is required by God of all men. To be acceptable, however, it must be made in the name of the Son by the help of the Spirit according to God's will. And so all of that is dealing with the framework of prayer. In other words, what are the major pillars that should characterize the structure of our praying, the skeleton of our praying? And it's an acceptable uh, framework consists of we pray in the name of the Son. First of all, we pray in the name of the Son, which uh, I think is probably obvious because we end All of our prayers typically with what phrase? In Jesus' name. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Why do we pray in the name of Jesus? Uh, Well, because Jesus has told us to pray in the name of Jesus. He has told us in John 14, 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And then just several verses later, he says, Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it, Jesus says. So when we pray, we're to pray in the name of the Son. And what does it mean to pray in the name of the Son? Well, it means primarily that when we come to God in prayer, we are remembering that it is only and entirely because of the blood and righteousness and intercession of Christ that we're able to come to God. So every single time we pray, as a church or as individuals, every single time we pray, we are to be reminding ourselves that we are coming to the Father in the name of the Son, based on the merits of Christ alone. That we have no other acceptance before the Father except the acceptance that we have through the blood, righteousness, and intercession of his Son who has redeemed us. Not only do we come in the name of the Son, but we come by the help of the Spirit. In Ephesians six eighteen, 18, we read that we should pray and make petition at all times in the Spirit. All right, so what does it mean to pray in the Spirit? Some would argue that it means to pray in tongues, in the language of the Spirit. That's certainly not what it means, uh, which is clear from the various scriptural contexts in which it's found, but we won't get into that. But it does mean praying with reliance upon the Spirit. Our, every, every aspect of our communion with God. Is through the agency of the Holy Spirit. In other words, you and I have no interaction, no genuine communion with God except that which is produced by the Spirit. And so it's the Holy Spirit who gives us an understanding of God. It's the Holy Spirit who gives us faith in God's word and in his promises. It's the Holy Spirit who assures us that we can address God as Father. He gives us confidence that we belong to our Father. It's the Holy Spirit who guides our praying. Romans 8, it's the Holy Spirit who intercedes for us in praying. Even when we don't know what to pray, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. He helps us. And so all true prayer is carried out in the strength and the enablement of the, of the Spirit. That, that doesn't mean necessarily that there's always going to be some um, mystical experience in prayer. It's not that we'll necessarily feel something different every time we pray, but we are remembering and we are trusting in the fact that our, our prayers must be helped by the spirit to give us faith and confidence in God's word and desire to pray. And so we pray with the help of the spirit and we pray according to the will of God. That's the third aspect of the framework of prayer, according to the will of God. So when you pray, you are not praying without a road map. You're not setting off on the destination of prayer without any idea where you're headed. You have been given a road map in the scriptures to know what your prayer should look like and and what types of things you should pray for and what sorts of uh, truths about God should shape your praying. And so when it comes to prayer, our prayer is acceptable to God when we pray according to his word in a way that's shaped by the word of God. And so in the name of the Son, by the help of the Spirit, and according to the will or the word of God, all of those three three things are components of acceptable prayer. And then the, the second category there has to do with the acceptable manner. So when we come together as a church this Sunday and we begin to offer our prayers to God, how can we know that our prayers are acceptable to him? Well, they have an acceptable manner about them. And uh, listed there are a number of aspects of an acceptable manner of prayer. Understanding, reverence and humility, fervency and faith, love, perseverance, our prayers don't give up easily, and then lastly, in a known language in a known language. And it says there, uh, when with others, in the confession paragraph, it says, uh, this is the last sentence of, of paragraph three, it says, after listing some of the other manners of prayer, it says, when with others in a known language. What do you think of when you hear that phrase, when with others in a known language? What do you think, uh, if I were to say that today, you should pray in a known language, what, what uh, error would I be attempting to address? Speaking in tongues, that's right. Do you think that's what the confession was addressing? No. What's that? Latin, that's right. Yeah, so when the confession was written, they weren't dealing with the issue of of charismatic speaking in tongues. They were dealing with the issue of a Latin mass, uh, of, of mass being carried out in a language that nobody understood. The common man had no idea what the priest was saying when he got up there and said hocus pocus. No one knew. No one understood any of it. And the, the writers of the Confession are, are making the point, everything we do in worship is to be done for the purpose of edification. Every prayer we offer, yes, it's to be heard by God, but every prayer we offer is also for the edification of others. So there's a reason we pray out loud on Sunday mornings when we come together. If our prayer was only for the purpose of, of hearing, uh, of being heard by God, that's, that's certainly the primary purpose. If that were the only purpose, then we could just pray silently, But that's not the only purpose of our praying. Our praying, the purpose of our praying, is mutual edification. When we hear the prayers of others, when we agree with the prayers of others, we're being edified. And so the point of the confession is, what good does it do to pray in Latin if no one understands? That doesn't edify or build up the church at all. Uh, As an interesting point, my neighbor, a few houses down the street, has a bumper sticker that says, Make Mass Latin again. (laughs) I thought that was interesting. We shouldn't make Mass Latin. We should do away with Mass altogether, probably, but it certainly shouldn't be in, in Latin. Uh, and, and we should seek edification in prayer. That's the point. All right. So then the, the third component of acceptable praying is acceptable content. We won't get into uh, these. Uh, they're straightforward except for letter D. Oh, by the way, did you notice my lettering on uh, the subheadings of number two there? A, B, D, F, G, G. That's not how you uh, lay out the alphabet, by the way. Um, that just tells you what kind of day I had today. As yeah, anyway. Um, so, letter th- number three. Number three. The acceptable content has to do with uh, what 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 should be included in our prayers. What types of things should we pray for? Uh, and the types of things we should pray for are anything lawful. Things that that God has not forbidden us. So that's obvious. You don't want to pray for something that God has told you not to pray for. Uh, That that wouldn't do any good. Uh, But also, all kinds of people. So we should not just pray for ourselves. 1 Timothy 2 tells us to pray for kings and rulers and all who are in authority, all kinds of people. We should also not pray for the dead. And the reason that's in there, again, is uh, Roman Catholicism and their uh, doctrine of purgatory and the idea that you can pray for someone after they've died in the hopes that they would be uh, alleviated or that some of their um, time in purgatory would be uh, reduced or alleviated, some of their suffering. And the scriptures are clear, no, after death comes judgment. It's appointed for all men to die, and after death comes judgment. And so the time for repentance is during life, the time for faith is during life, once someone dies, the opportunity for faith and repentance is no longer given, and so we're not to be praying for the dead. And then lastly, their letter D is uh, we should not pray for, the sin, for those who have committed the sin leading to death. The confession lists that. That's from 1 John chapter 5. The sin leading to death probably has to do with the false teachers in the context uh, to which 1 John is written, those who have clearly apostatized, denied the faith, um, blasphemed the Holy Spirit, uh, but we don't have time to get into a uh, discussion of that. I think Jeremy Walker gives a helpful point here. I'll quote him with regard to how do we, how do we go about not praying for those who have uh, committed the sin leading to death, and he says, the confession reminds us that unless the—oh, uh, no, that's, a, that's the wrong quote— Yeah, here it is. Practically, it does not seem at all likely that any one of us will ever find ourselves in a situation in which we are so confident that someone has sinned unto death that we will be justified in ceasing to pray for him. To use an example, most of us might have been ready to put Saul of Tarsus into such a category until his conversion by the abounding grace of God in Jesus Christ. So you think about that. If you knew the Apostle Paul and his blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, or blasphemy against Christ, and his persecution of Christians— would you not have thought, if there's anyone who has committed the sin leading to death, it's the Apostle Paul, and, and uh, Jeremy Walker's reminding us, don't be hasty to assume that, that someone is beyond the point of uh, repentance being a possibility. And so we should be careful uh, who, we, who we put into that category. All right, so let's move on to uh, the other elements of worship. There letter B. Listed below there uh, are six Further elements of worship, six other things that God has commanded us to do in the context of worship, um, really prayer could be under the Word as well, but I've listed these six under the, the, the heading, the Word, because basically everything we do in the church is some form of expression of the Word of God. Uh, everything centers around the Scriptures, and so actually we, we pray according to the Word. We could have included prayer under that, but then additionally, we, we read the Word, 1 Timothy four thirteen. 13. Uh, Paul instructs Timothy to give attention to the public reading of Scripture. And then we uh, preach the word, 2 Timothy 4, 2. Paul exhorts Timothy uh, to preach the word, to be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. So preaching is to be a part of corporate worship. Hearing the word, and this is listed as a separate uh, element of worship because it's it's a reminder that uh, when we hear the word, whether it's being read or, or being preached, every single one of us is to be just as active in the engagement with that word as the one speaking it. And so if, if I'm up here speaking or reading the scriptures, I have the role of speaking, but you just as equally have the role of hearing actively and attentively. And the scriptures are clear that we should be careful how we listen to the word of God. Uh, Luke, 18, uh, Luke 8, I think, is where Jesus tells us, be careful how you listen. Pay attention. Be careful how you hear. Be careful how you respond to the word of God. Isaiah 66, God says, but to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. So it matters how we listen to the word of God. Not just that it's read, not just that it's preached, but that we listen rightly uh, when we come together for worship. And then, Fourthly, we sing the word, and those passages there talk about singing and making melody with the heart to the Lord. We see the word in the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Both of those ordinances are pictures of the gospel, and so we see the word visibly in the elements of the Lord's Supper and in the act of baptism. And then we agree with the word, and this one is added, this is not in the paragraph of the Confession but it's added, um, and I think rightly so, Sam Waldron includes this in his book on how then should we worship. He has uh, included the amen as an element of worship. In other words, it's not an optional uh, uh, consideration for us. It's not that we can uh, decide whether or not we want to agree with the word of God. The, The amen is actually something that the church is expected and required to do as the word is read and preached and prayed. In other words, we should all be, uh, I, th- I think you could even argue that we should all be audibly expressing from time to time our wholehearted agreement with the word of God. Um, that's applied in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Thank you, I was waiting. It's applied in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, uh, where Paul is talking about tongues. And again, it's talking about the known language thing. And he's saying you should pray in in a language that people can understand because if you don't, he says, how will they give their amen? In other words, Paul is saying when the church prays, it's, it's assumed, it's expected that there are audible amens being given to what's being prayed, what's being preached, what's being proclaimed, what's being read. The church is saying we wholeheartedly affirm that this is true and we delight in this truth. And, and so that's what amen means, basically. It, it means truly it is so, or truly may it be so when someone prays, truly let it be. We're, we're simply wholeheartedly saying, I agree and I delight in that truth, in the truth of God. And, uh, and that's something that we should be active in doing as a church body when we come together for worship. And then there are occasional elements listed as well these are things that won't happen with the same frequency the same regularity but they should happen from time to time and these include times of fasting and times of thanksgiving as a corporate body so i can think back to 2020 uh, during the time of covid where we set apart a certain amount of time to fast and pray together as a church particularly for the cause of abortion uh, or abolition so the church should be doing that at times, whether it's fasting and praying, or particular seasons of thanksgiving. We should set a time set aside time, to come together with the intentional purpose of giving thanks and fasting and crying out to God. And then, lastly, a final point for this evening: the location of worship. Where should we worship? And Jesus answers that question very clearly in John chapter four, speaking to the woman at the well who says, our fathers say we're supposed to worship on that mountain over there. Yours say you're supposed to worship on that mountain over there. And Jesus says, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshiper. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Jesus says neither in this mountain, nor in that mountain, nor in any other mountain, nor in any other geographic location is it going to be said, this is the particular place where you worship God. In other words, there will be no geographical place designated as the place of worship. This room is not any more uh, sacred, essentially, Because it is a church building, then your living room. There's nothing uh, particularly um, holy about a building. What makes it holy are the people who gather here. And so in the Old Testament, God's special place of his presence was in the temple. That is where God said, I will dwell here. This is where my glory is going to dwell. This is where my people will meet with me. This is where they will worship me. That was in the temple. That has been abolished in Christ But God still has a place where he dwells, just as much so as in the temple of the Old Testament. He still has a place, a special place of his dwelling, and that place is now the church. And so now the place of worship is wherever the church is. He has made us his temple, according to Ephesians 2, and has made us the dwelling place of his Holy Spirit. And so now the place of worship is wherever Christians gather in the name of Jesus And that includes then three different uh, places where we can worship God. And and these, um, again, it includes individual praying and in families as well as the public assembly. There is particular emphasis in the scriptures given to the public assembly when the church gathers together. Jesus says in Matthew 18, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with you. Uh, that's where Jesus dwells, where two or three believers gather together. There is a special dwelling of Christ in our midst. So when we come together on Sundays for public worship, Christ is here in a particular way, in a special way, with his people, by his Spirit. But we're still responsible, and and it's still our privilege, to be able to worship him individually uh, in the secret place. Matthew 6, Jesus tells us to to pray in secret, to shut the door and, and, uh, and, and pray alone with our Father. There's, there's a private element to prayer and to worship. But there's also uh, family worship. We should be worshiping God in the context of our families, not just privately as individuals, but bringing our spouse and our children together to worship God together on a regular basis. Uh, Deuteronomy 6 makes clear that it's the responsibility of parents to teach and instruct their children. Sean's sermon uh, a couple weeks ago reminded us of the importance that even Mary's role— as uh, the mother who instructed Jesus probably had in his own understanding of the Scriptures and uh, the privilege that mothers have today, and, and fathers included in that, of teaching and instructing their children in the things of the Lord. And, and to do that, we should not only have informal conversations, we certainly should, but we should also have formal times, more formal, intentional times, where we bring our families together and we say, we are setting apart these 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes, whatever it is, we are setting apart this time to uh, remember the Lord together, to open up his word, to pray, um, even to sing together, and uh, to discuss the truths of God's word. Those are the things that God has promised, bring edification to our, our souls, and we should be diligent to do that together as families on a regular basis. It's going to look different for every family. Some of us will be uh, wrestling monkeys as they climb over our shoulders and uh, everything else, but, um, but it should happen. So for some it may be, you know what, I can make it five minutes with my kids before things blow up. So uh, if we can read one verse, pray for a few minutes, and sing like two lines of a song, that's a success, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, Some will have more time, 15 minutes, with their kids to be able to sit down and read and and pray and worship God together. That's great. It's going to look different in every context. The point is we should be making the effort to teach and instruct and shepherd our children through the context of family worship. Uh, William Bokstein says this about the importance of centering our families on the worship of God. He says, Every family has a God. Every day, young adults leave home with the gods of self-fulfillment, money, leisure, work, or even ministry. But some leave with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To a large extent, the difference is determined by how our families worship in the home. So he's just reminding us it matters how we worship because that's going to leave a lasting impact on lives of our children. All right, well, that is uh, it for this evening with regard to worship. Um, I'll conclude with with just one final application of those three aspects of worship. So all three of these aspects of worship, or locations of worship individually and families in the public assembly, all three of them are important. Uh, Of particular importance in the Christian life is the assembly, the public assembly. And, uh, and we're commanded not to forsake the assembly. And so there is special emphasis given to that as believers. It is vitally important to the health of our souls that we gather together on the Lord's day for the purpose of worship with his body. But the other two are also very important. Individual times of worship, times of worship together with our families. Um, and, and it's been compared to the, a three-legged stool. Jason Helipoulos one by the way, I have a good book by Jason Helipoulos on this topic of family worship. If you're interested in it, just a brief book. I'd be glad to give it to you. Uh, but he says, if one leg is severed, so all three of these are a leg of a stool, public, private, family worship. If one leg is severed, then the stool does not stand. It may be propped up for a time, but it is wobbly and dangerous. The stool will eventually fall. It cannot bear, it cannot bear up with only two legs. Similarly, the Christian life is lived in worship. It must function in all three of these spheres. A Christian will find it most beneficial to practice secret worship, corporate worship, and family worship. They are all important for our life in Christ. And so just a helpful reminder that uh, your walk with Christ is not exclusively individual, and it's not exclusively corporate. It includes all of those elements together, and a healthy Christian life depends on uh, multiple contexts of worship. All right, well, let's pray together, and then we'll conclude this evening with a song. Our Father, we do thank you for your word, and we're thankful that uh, your word tells us how it is you desire to be worshiped by us. Uh, We confess before you that, left to ourselves, we would make a mess of worship and would distort it and would do all sorts of things that are displeasing and dishonoring to you, but we thank you that and your kindness to us and your desire to be worshiped by us, you've told us what worship should look like uh, on the pages of the scriptures, and we do pray that you would bless the efforts of worship in this church as we come together as a church body for worship. Would you uh, cause that to be a time in which your spirit is uh, present with us and ministers to us? Would you help us in our efforts of worship that we might do it in spirit and in truth in sincerity according to your will? God, and helped and empowered by your Spirit that we might do all things in a way that's pleasing to you. Father, we thank you for the privilege of worshiping you in private and and, uh, with friends and family, and we pray that you'd help us to be diligent to do that as well, that we might seek daily to edify our own souls in your word through worship. We thank you for Christ, God. We thank you that though we fall short in so many ways when it comes to worshiping you, you have been gracious to us. You have forgiven us for the ways that we've failed to worship you as you deserve, and you are graciously working in us to make us conform to your will when it comes to worship. We thank you that you are patient and kind and gracious through Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.